With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, March 28th. The On Brand Analysis Edition. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Christina Cotarucci can't be with us today, so I get the pleasure of chewing over the week in women with Marsha Shatlin, who is a professor of history and African American studies at Georgetown. Hi, Marsha. Hello. And making her Waves debut today is Maya Salam, gender reporter for The New York Times, who writes in her words the Times newsletter about gender and women's issues. Welcome, Maya. Hi, June. It's a pleasure. So before we begin today, I just wanted to note that last week's episode led quite a few people to write into us to note that the waves they spoke pronunciation of Candidate O'Rourke's first name was very, very inaccurate. But it's just our tribute to Beyonce. So sorry, Beto, but, you know, we talk how we talk. Um, okay, on today's show, we'll be talking about New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's empathetic response to the March 15th mosque attacks, the new Hulu series The Act, which tells a horrifying real-life story of maternal abuse, and the latest sadly familiar attacks on comprehensive, accurate sex education. And Marcia, what's the is it sexist question that we'll be discussing in our fourth segment, which is for Slate Plus members? The question is, is Chris Hayes' use of the term ragging to refer to Elizabeth Warren's speaking style, is that sexist? Mm, that's, uh, and here's a little sample from that conversation. So I don't know how to deliberate on this case with Chris yeah. Hayes, yeah. but I do have a lot of questions as to that characterization um, relative to the conversation that was being had. And I think that this is about how women's tone is interpreted. Yeah, I always want to say, you'll know when I'm shouting. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear more by starting a free two-week trial of Slate Plus by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. All right, let's get started. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's response to the murder of 50 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand on March 15th has been, I feel like, universally praised. She literally embraced the Muslim community, covering her hair and visiting mosques. She told Donald Trump that the best way he could support New Zealand was by, quote, offering support and love for all Muslim communities. And, of course, she announced a ban on military-style semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles and high-capacity magazines with impressive speed. Marcia, is the response to Arden gendered, do you think? So this is an interesting story because I think it has a lot of layers about um, how deeply incompetent the U.S. president is <laughs> and how incredibly um, gendered male ideas of power and leadership are in times of crisis. And they're all converging. And I think that there's a lot to be praised um, with the response in New Zealand and I think it's something, I think it's somewhat disheartening the fact that 
acting like a thoughtful human being is something to be praised. (laughs) So it's this really interesting way in which I think the response is really a reaction to um, a really dominant sense that when there is an act of terror, when there is an act of violence, the leader's response is to kind of heighten people and make them more afraid and make them um, seek vengeance. One of the pieces in The New Yorker from Masha Gessen talks about, you know, Bush's response to 9-11 and this alternative response, which kind of moves people towards thinking about their grief and really being reflective. So I think that there's something really powerful in the analysis of this moment. But the other thing that I guess I'm struggling with in the praise is can we imagine a response in a moment like this that tells people to be compassionate toward the Muslim community, don't be racist, but we have to be really activated to fight white nationalists, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the war on terror was animated by this really strange balance of saying, you know, don't be anti-Muslim, but we're going to go get someone. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about this idea of what do we do then with thinking about ways that we can resist white nationalism and still be attentive to the grief and the pain that people are feeling in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, there were... It's very understandable to kind of see this heaping of praise on Arden and New Zealand and, oh, the speed, all of this stuff, that, as you say, the empathy. Um, And I think there's also uh, a reasonable amount of pushback from people who say, well, you know, our countries are pretty different. Um, The United States has a Second Amendment, however it is interpreted, and it's a very different size, a different place in the world, Um, and frankly, a you know, more of a need to project power. How does how do you kind of uh, incorporate that Maya with what Marsha's saying about, you know, it's one thing to, for example, as, as Arden has done, not to say the perpetrator's name, but um, how do we push back against white nationalism that, that led to his attack? Well, like you said, you know, we are two completely different countries, but there certainly are overlaps in that, you know, New Zealanders do have an attachment to their guns. A lot of it is rural and there certainly is fewer um, hurdles to, you know, acquire guns there. In fact, I believe that they don't even know where uh, the shooter had acquired one of the guns that he had used. Um, When we're living in a country like the U.S. where our highest leaders um, refuse to uh, speak against, you know, the rise of white nationalism, it seeing what uh, Justin Arden has done, it I mean we are just starved for humanity yeah. at this point. You know we've really resigned ourselves to the same process, the same reaction, the same think pieces. Moving on, repeat. Um, so just to hear something as as obvious or as simple as somebody saying we have to fight white nationalism, I'm not going to. Um, give the shooter the sort of, uh, especially particularly this shooter, because it was such, you know, it really was made for the internet, as has, Mm -hmm. you know, we've written, as New York Times wrote about, everyone's been writing about that. It's just a very powerful and simple move. And she just has such, uh, she has such charisma, but she just is human. When When you mentioned the gendering of it, I think one of the things that's been rubbing me the wrong way about some of the reporting is, uh, I have seen that, you know, it was such a feminine response, you know, and I think that that being a gender reporter and focusing on 
feminine and masculine issues and how we divvy everything up, <laughs> it, we're basically saying that to be human, to even to have courage in this way is, uh, is feminine. And I find that to be just to the root of the problem of even speaking about her like that as a, just as a woman and not as a leader. So I think that some of the analysis of this is about this idea that as a leader, Arden is a female leader, and at the same time, um, she's doing a lot of the work that I think people often associate with a first lady or a first spouse. And so I wonder if there's conversations about how her male partner appears in this moment, or if people don't even consider it. And so in this really interesting way, where in the United States, for instance, if President Obama was visiting um, families in Newtown or was going to Charleston after the shooting at the Mother Emanuel AME Church, there's a sense that um, as a head of state, he kind of steadies people, he shows some compassion, but has a wife there also as an appendage. And so I think it's interesting when you have um, a woman leader who is who has a partner who is unmarried, the ways that perhaps she has to embody all of those roles um, for the public. Yeah. And I just wanted to add, because um, my family's Muslim, uh, so I feel like within this hostile environment, this climate that we're in, I just felt like people around the world, Muslims around the world, just needed this so badly. Um you know, I'm not. I'm not practicing, but <laughs> I still felt that um, it was such an important statement at such an important time, and I think that's one of the one of the many reasons that this has gotten this sort of uh, has struck people so deeply. Yeah, because it, not only was it it wasn't a gesture; it, said it was something. It was uh, something that felt real and that really mm-hmm. connected with people and really made a difference. Absolutely. And I didn't actually cry about this shooting until I watched her embracing. Um, the families uh, wearing the headscarf. That is finally what really got to me because it was so genuine. So it was both a symbol and something that really connects with people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because... You know, I do feel this need to keep saying it. Last time we talked about Arden on the show when she was pregnant and a prime minister, we got a lot of pushback from listeners in New Zealand and Australia about our constantly talking, this tiny country on the other side of the world, this distant tiny country, which it is. But I'm very conscious of always something to say, like, it's a different kind of country. But I'm really conscious that most women leaders of sort of not necessarily size, but more maybe countries that are required to project more power. Um, When they have female leaders, those women tend to be people who are not particularly empathetic, like in my country, Mrs. Thatcher, or now Theresa May, who whether they got into power because they were, you know, they were not particularly uh, you know, empathetic women that they'd that, that their kind of affect that their political style, uh, you know, made the men around them comfortable, or because you know that's just how they were. Which I actually think probably both of those things. It's unusual for us to see um, a leader who's now in the spotlight, whatever the size of the country, wherever it is, she's in the spotlight. People are seeing her doing these things that you're talking about, Maya, and she is also stressing empathy and and actually grieving actually modeling this is i feel really gutted by what happened i am hurt i want to make people 
feel better. I have this role. You know, it's it's very personal, but she's also speaking very, very uh, effectively, very, very um, eloquently as well. And at the same time, being so direct and being so powerful and leading, you know, she said, you may have chosen us to the shooter, but we utterly reject and condemn you. Yeah. And then, of course, the moves that she made with gun control. So yeah. it is a balance that has shaken me because I just don't know if I've ever seen something like this. Yeah. And, and it's it's true. It's like I, my fear in a way is that she's like now our new Internet girlfriend, you know, that like <laughs> we have this tendency to, you know, it was just in Trudeau for a minute and, you know, it's going to be just in Darden for a second. And instead of I don't know if it's not that we're we're liking these people instead of like doing something productive or, you know, we're not. You know, we could be doing blah, blah, blah. We could be getting gun control. Or we could, it's not that. It's not that a choice between, uh, you know, saying nice things about Jacinda Ardern or getting gun control in America. That is not the choice. But I do, like, I sometimes, like, it's great. But what does that do for us? I don't know. It's I, Maybe I'm just uh, paranoid or something. Um, Marsha, do you think there's anything we can take from Arden's response to this incident? Uh, like, is there a lesson? Is there a, a sort of a message about leadership? I think that I hope that this is an opportunity to one think about why so many of us are conditioned to not expect um, respect and grace yeah. and empathy in these yeah. moments. And I think that this is about a larger question about. Um, you know, yes, New Zealand is very different than the U.S., but what does it mean when nations are kind of built on a colonial project <laughs> and the ways that within those nations um, people can start to develop um, ideologies and viewpoints in which they believe they belong and no one else does? Because I think that that yeah. does connect these two yeah. right, very different places. And to take seriously, you know, like after we... Um, invite people to really sit in their grief, right, in these kind of big national moments, how we do that in an interpersonal level. So I think there's, I think there's tons to learn and tons to think about. I just really hope that, um, you know, in a month that we return to this, and in two months, we return mm. to this, in a year, we return to this, because I think one of the things that is different between the US and New Zealand is that um, I think mass shootings have been if not normalized, internalized as part of what um, the price we pay in this country for freedom in this really sick way. And so the shock of kind of what happened in New Zealand, I don't know if it fully reverberates in the U.S. because I think that every time this happens somewhere in the United States, we just kind of brace ourselves until it happens again. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I really, what you said about, you know, it reveals the paucity of our expectations, I think is very powerful. And, you know, the, 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 I think I'm sad to say that when there is, when there is a mass shooting, I mean, what kind of phrase is that even? But we, we, we all know what, uh, th that is just a fact of life here, effectively. We, I, it's almost as if we've, We've given up hope that anything will be done. We have to resigned, this. totally resigned ourselves, yeah. and it was like she was just like, Psst, "It doesn't have to be this way." Yeah, yeah. It was. She was modeling uh, action. Not that we can directly take those same actions here, but Luke, action. Mm -hmm. Somebody did something, and the underlying causes. She spoke about the connection with Facebook. Um, you know the Facebook Live. I mean, 
she really has already in just a short amount of time touched on so many of the underlying causes. Yeah. Which is just foreign territory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in more ways than one. Yes. And she, and I do think, again, something that you mentioned, Marsha, that it's, yeah, in one way you can say it, it's just words. But when she said um, something like, uh, it's not a, an exact quote, but something like, you know, Mus- you know, to Muslim New Zealanders, you are part of New Zealand. Um, that is a very basic statement. And yet it's something that is, you know, so key that when it, we kind of talk about immigrant communities or ex-communities as if they're separate, when people become citizens, they are now part of the country. They, you know, it's you can't divide these 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 groups forever. And just her saying that you are part of us. Um, it's very, very basic, so basic, I think, that it, it almost is kind of under the radar. And yet I think it's one of the most powerful of the many powerful things that she said and something that, again, is a an international uh, message that, that can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. All right. The last time we talked about Arden uh, when she was pregnant, as I said earlier, we got a lot of outraged emails from Kiwis who thought we'd misunderstood their country. So come on, Kiwis, rate us on this segment. Write to us at thewaves@slate.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before we get to our next topic, I just want to mention that The Waves is getting together with Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast, to host a live show during Slate Day. If you'll be in New York City on Saturday, June 8th, there will be no better place to have a boozy picnic brunch and enjoy some sparkling, sassy conversation with Hannah Rosen, Noreen Malone, me and Brian Lauder and Brandon Tensley from the Outward podcast. So start the day right, uh, come to the brunch and go to slate.com slash live for details. All right, our second topic today is The Act, a new eight-episode series on Hulu starring Patricia Arquette and Joey King as Dee Dee and Gypsy Road Blanchard, an extraordinarily interdependent mother-daughter pair. It's based on a true story, a true crime story, indeed, that involves Munchausen syndrome by proxy and murder. It's a story that was told by Michelle Dean, who co-wrote the new series. In BuzzFeed, under the title, Dee Dee wanted her daughter to be sick, Gypsy wanted her mom murdered. Marsha, how does the show tell the story of the Blanchards? So it is a multi-part series that talks about the Blanchard family from, I think, two perspectives. The outside perspective of the Blanchard family neighbors, who are, I think, a little curious about this mother-daughter duo. And the Chloe Savini character um, plays a neighbor who's a little um, suspicious of um, Dee Dee and her behavior in the community. And then you get an inside look at the dynamics between this mother and daughter and the lengths that the mother goes to to keep the daughter sick 
and the lengths that the daughter goes to to try to um, assert herself and to try to make sense of the world that her mother has created and tightly controlled. And so I think that what this fictionalization of this story tries to um, communicate is the various um, ways that Dee Dee is just so skillful at manipulation and evasion, as well as the ways that I think true crime often operates, where people have to determine whether they should trust their gut or not. Yeah. Oh, that's so well put. Uh, We'll return to some of those uh, themes. Maya, did this work for you as television? So when the Michelle Dean's report came out, I I was obsessed with it. Mm. Um, Much as a proxy, when I first heard of it, I feel like it really came into like our pop culture, like the cultural mind with Eminem. Uh, in cleaning out my closet, oh my um, he mentions it directly. You know, he's a victim of my oh. syndrome. Oh, wow. um, and I had heard about it when I was even younger than that. I come from a medical family, and they were always tossing around all these terms in my house. And that one really, I was like, because it's so psychological, and it's just you know, you hear so often about child abuse, but this was like something I'd never heard. I remember researching it. Um, so when this report came out, I was absolutely riveted. And when I heard they were making a, a show about it, I was, you know, skeptical. But of course, I plan to watch it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, as far as the show itself, um, I did. I it's only two episodes in, so I'm speaking here. With right. Just we've only we're only seen two episodes. I think the third one came out today, but. Yeah. Um, I found this aesthetically, I had some problems with it. I felt like it was trying to be like a Ryan Murphy show. Interesting. <laughs> uh, to some degree. I mean, it's all exploitative at the end of the day. Um, but I also, I didn't, I found like it hadn't really found its tone or its pacing, mm. especially in the first episode. And I also found... You know, it's taking some liberties with the dynamics between, I mean, of course, uh, spoiler alert, Dee Dee was murdered. Right. Um, so if you, you, should, you probably do know that if you read the story. But so it, it is kind of working for me in the sense that I think the acting is tremendous. But yeah. um, I, I'm, I, I am struggling with a few few of the points. About, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm so with you. It's it's like you're. I agree. It, the the acting is amazing. Uh, the two leads, uh, as we've mentioned, uh, Patricia Arquette, Joey King, are spectacular. Uh, Chloe Sevigny, is, it's a very weird mm-hmm. uh, role. As you mentioned, Marsha, there are these kind of two tracks, the inside, like, almost like what's happening inside the house and what's happening outside the house. And despite some really wonderful acting, including, uh, I think, Anna-Sophia Robb mm-hmm. plays uh, kind of Chloe Savini's daughter. So she's kind of more similar in age to Gypsy, the daughter, and and kind of has a bond with her. And she's also a wonderful, like really empathetic actress. But there's there there, there are too much on the sidelines. Um, and so they're acting wonderfully, but it's like they're they're they know no more than us, uh, us viewers. So there's a kind of a frustration to their role in it. And and at this, and despite this wonderful acting, it's a show that I found so hard to watch because it is just essentially it's a very sadistic um, kind of of story. It's a, a a mother, perhaps because she does have mental health problems, 
nevertheless, what she's doing is is physically and mentally just hurting uh, very severely her daughter because she's not only claiming that her daughter has all these illnesses like cancer, like muscular dystrophy, like, you know, an inability to consume food by mouth, like allergies that cause her to give her EpiPen injections you know, in public. Chromosome, uh, chromosomal defects. Yeah, she's making all kinds of claims, but she is also having her treated for these diseases. That She does have a feeding tube in that, and in fact, in, uh, in the real case, you know, caused her daughter to have, you know, eye operations, ear operations, very, very intrusive and serious treatments, operations, medicines on a you know, a kind of constant basis. So this is a horrific story of physical and mental abuse. And so, as you say, there's there's always an edge of exploitation in these stories. But this is just pure sadism. It's very, very, very hard to watch. And when you make it entertainment, um, I, I found myself trying to compare it to other movies and shows that show, you know, mothers treating their children in, like you said, sadistic ways. But I, you know, you always return to the fact that this is a true story. Right. So I think that's one of the things when you ever, whenever you make a, a turned crime story into a, like a live action yeah. <laughs> TV show or whatnot. Yeah. yeah there's something to struggle with. One thing I will commend the show on is that um, it is not only a show with so many women uh, I mean, I'm trying to think. Is have I seen a man yet in the yeah, first two episodes? Barely, I'm, I'm, barely. barely. And um, also, the story is a story of women and girls and sexuality. In fact, I think the main story here is the suppression of gypsy sexuality, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that uh, they're going to expound upon that quite a bit. And and turning and developing young woman into keeping her. And to, like a baby doll girl. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And and kind of fermenting an interest in like Disney-fied romance, mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm. you know, a big mistake. <laughs> Not a good thing uh, if you want to kind of truly suppress that those notions in your child. But, uh, you know, an appealing view of a sort of childish version of, of romance and sexuality, but yes. nevertheless a version of romance and sexuality. And before we get too far away from the, the women-centeredness of this show, also... Uh, I think five of the eight episodes are directed by women, mm-hmm. which is certainly uh, unusual these days. Um, and I know there had been some criticism about uh, Nick and Tosca, I think is probably how you pronounce it, um, the co-creator, who is someone that Michelle Dean said that she had brought on. And, and she did speak to my colleague, Eleanor Stanford, uh, for an interview that just published a day or two ago. And, um, you know, she ha- she had she had defended him. I mean, she said, I brought him on and this show is is being acted by, directed by the showrunners. I mean, there are women involved all up throughout the whole process. Right. Uh, Eleanor was uh, kind of confronting. I was asking Michelle what she thought of uh, a view that uh, he had maybe taken more credit than 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 he perhaps deserved for for his role as co-showrunner. Um, Marcia, the. How do you see this kind of very tricky line uh, when you're kind of doing a show that's about a mental, you know, a real mental health, uh, a real disease, if you put it that way, but where the person who suffers from this disease, in this particular case, also seems to be um, a criminal. She's also a scammer. She is also, she's maybe making her daughter sick um, for the 
attention and and the the sort of rewards uh, that come uh, you know from having a sick child. That's kind of the nature of Munchausen's by proxy, but. She also was getting money from neighbors. She was taking trips that kids who really were sick could have taken. She was, you know, she was a scammer. She was a criminal. That's it's a it's weird to kind of even though that makes them more interesting, perhaps uh, on television. That's a a tough conflation, right? So. At, at the risk of being so on brand on my analysis, so there's two things that I think of when I think of this. Um, you know, I'm always going to indict capitalism and racism a right little on. bit, no matter what I'm talking about. So two things. So the part of this story that I think you're right, there's this interesting way in which Munchausen's by proxy um, is put within the frame that, you know, Dee is a scammer. And she'll mm-hmm. do anything for her scam. Mm-hmm. And while that was true, I think, about the real Dee Dee, I think sometimes it's dangerous in this kind of representation that um, this mental health issue that she has, um, tethering it to criminality, I think sometimes can maybe help, maybe the public misunderstands what this is all about. Because I think that, um, you know, part of what Munchausen is partly is the exacerbation of, I think, of some of the ways that women are validated. And so um, I think about this is also um, a storyline in Sharp Objects, right? So this idea that the way that women are validated is because there are these outstanding caretakers. And so I think you tend to see this among women. And so there's a way in which kind of the social world um, starts to influence the ways that people... um, and their pathologies kind of meet. So there's kind of that one thing. And so I think that in this representation of putting it in terms of she would scam any way she could, I think makes the audience less really sympathetic to this very, very, you know, sad thing that Mm -hmm. this woman struggles with. And I think a lot of women and a lot of people have struggled with. Um, But that aside, I think that there's something kind of interesting to think about the ways that someone like Dee Dee can manipulate the medical system because of um, ideas of race and ideas of good mothering Mm -hmm. versus bad Mm -hmm. mothering. Mm -hmm. And I'm really struck by just the way that so many journalists and so many people have shared their accounts of not getting enough pain medication, the high um, black maternal death rates. Mm -hmm. And it's also about a kind of perception of a relationship, not only about empathy and pain management, but mothering. So there's this kind of interesting thing where this works for Dee Dee in real life and in this story, because as a white woman, I think that there's certain assumptions about her deep level of care for her child Mm -hmm. that I think other women are excluded from within that framework and can't manipulate it. And at the same time, this is also a story about this strange way in which um, childhood illness, that some of the responses to childhood illness is through these really beautiful acts of generosity, but it's mm-hmm. like material objects. So there's yep. this kind of weird thing, right? Yep. Um, and, you know, just to be so me, I would love to live in a world in which children with chronic and serious illnesses are provided like free health care and uh, the resources that their families mm-hmm. need to survive yeah. and not trips. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, yeah. trips are good too, but I think that there's this. I think that there's some interesting politics that this film is representing, but not on purpose, that yeah. gives us an opportunity yeah. to think about 
all of these systems that exacerbate this situation, even though it's extreme? Well, it's not even just trips, though. I mean, to, 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 if I'm, now let's switch for me to be on brand. The second, ep- the second episode is called Teeth, and it's uh, incredibly uh, moving. It's an incredibly, I don't know, it, it kind of pulls you apart if, if you have any sensitive sensitivity, especially to this particular topic. But the, the center of it is, in Dee Dee's version of Gypsy's Life, she has to use a wheelchair. Uh, in fact, she can walk. Uh, and this is kind of one of those areas where this the interesting kind of psychology between the two of them is how Gypsy comes to realize how much of what her mother is saying is a lie based on her own experience of her own body. Her mother says she's allergic to sugar, and yet she can eat sugar. Her mother says she can't walk. She can walk. Um, and and that's a that is a genuinely interesting kind of unraveling of their of their mutual lie, but um, at night she gets up she she eats just ridiculously sugary things her teeth rot she then needs dental treatment well this is a real thing that happens in America many millions of kids in America have dental treatment through Medicaid. But dentists won't see uh, kids uh, who have Medicaid coverage, even though it is insurance coverage, because they say it doesn't cover their expenses. It's difficult to, uh, you know, lots of hurdles, lots of administrative hurdles. This is in dispute. But some, you know, there's lots of charity care by dentists. And essentially, that's what Gypsy gets. Her teeth are effectively extracted. And that's, that makes for a really great dramatic scene. It's not quite true to what happened in the story, although it's something similar. But again, it's like that is a, a, the very, you know, these extreme cases are what is needed to get care in this country. And that's maybe one just aspect of it. But in a, Didi was a grifter. This case is very much not the typical, but there's a sense in which, uh, you know, the way that working class people can get care is by scamming because there's no way that they could afford to get care or get to see a dentist or get to, you know, this is a weird scammy way that is actually should be something basic. And it's it's just that was that really came through to me that like this, this is not the way that I would expect for this point to be made, but it's actually made really, really effectively. And it's, it's disturbing. It definitely underscores so many issues with the medical system, which is kind of a surprising revelation from the show. And I thought including the fact that she was so easy to convince so many doctors as she moved around, we've lost the charts, we don't have the records, you know, the records were lost in Katrina. I mean, surely that happens. But I mean, we, we've heard of it, how people are able to hop from doctor to doctor, even within the same area, get prescription for medication. Uh, the lack of tracking and record keeping. I, I keep asking myself, is this real? Is it real? Right, you right. Know? And, and that, I mean, and again, it it's goes back to what you were saying, Marcia, of like, Certain mothers, their word, you know, is taken. And it's also about, you know, even though Gypsy actually wasn't developmentally disabled, apparently, you know, whether by drugging her effectively or simply stating over and over, oh, she's got the mind of a seven-year-old. And because we don't listen to either children or developmentally disabled people, and it's very difficult for them to, you know, have agency, that 
you know, this kind of just lies and, and very damaging lies, uh, you know, can be perpetrated. Apparently, you know, in the story, there is um, a, or say in the show, there is a doctor who is suspicious and, and in real life there was too. Um, and it's, and yet that's one doctor. And in, 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 this, in real life, at least, um, you know, there's, although they not only were suspicious, but found some evidence that Dee Dee was lying they they didn't they weren't able uh to stop her her lies um you brought up motherhood uh earlier um marcia but uh it, it is a kind of really interesting um do you agree with me about like this this portrayal of how we trust mothers to kind of look after their kids' best interests, certainly white mothers, and how reluctant we are to give kids a chance to speak? Well, I don't think it's just trust. The expectation is that, you know, kind of this is what moms do. And, I, you know, I wonder about this this series because I had a lot of the discomfort watching it. And I think it not only kind of sends me into a moral panic about whether true crime is ethical, which I go through all the time as I watch this stuff. (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to imagine if I could tolerate this if – I was watching about a dad abusing children. Mm, yeah, yeah. And like what that would feel like if that kind of story was brought in this way, because there is a kind of Ryan Murphy creepiness and the color palette, right, that they use and the kind of the visual of it. And it's more in the style of, um, you know, mommy dearest, like these, yeah, these yeah. kind of extreme, really dramatic portrayals of of mothers abusing particularly daughters. And I don't know, um, I don't even know if I have a filter or a sensibility to watch something in which a father is abusing a child in this way. I think that there's been dramatizations of maybe child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. but the idea that a father is entrusted with the care of a child and, and abuses that, I don't even... Like, I can't even think of anything that would show that because the expectation of care isn't kind of embedded in that social dynamic. And so all of this is to say that, you know, watching this is essentially like a popular series about child abuse. Yep. Yep. And I don't uh, I, I, yep. I, it makes me so uneasy. Yeah. I honestly also felt that way about the uh, I, Tanya movie, because mm. the whole movie is mm. is domestic abuse. Mm. You know, I actually wasn't able to get through it because at one point I was like, OK, I'm, I've seen enough of her getting beat up by her partner and her mom. And, you know, at some point when you, as a viewer, you do kind of step back and be like, what am I really watching yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I I've been asking like these first two episodes, especially episode two, like they absolutely tore me up. Like they've stuck with me on. I was impressed by so much about them. Um, And it's funny. I had not made that a Ryan Murphy connection, but that is it feels very, very apt, not only visually, but in that that feeling that you often get of like, this is really good. But is it good for me? Is it actually, you know, is it damaging my soul? And I'd like to to exaggerate grossly, but like that, this is actually not really a topic that 
I want to sit with, that I want to put in my head, that I that I need to have uh, to be pondering more. Um, and yet there were, were really interesting questions. One of the things that I think actually we'll probably get to in a certain sense in our final topic when we talk about sex ed is like this line um, between being overprotective and actually abusing your children um, or, or being or harming them, um, you know, Maybe it, this came across to me because I was an only child and actually also had a very overprotective mother who like wouldn't let me cross the street, but also kind of let all my teeth rot out. The the teeth thing was very moving to me. So like, as I also had to go through that. And that is, I think, often the case. And I brought up the sex ed thing because I think, you know, certain kinds of parents don't want their kids to know some things. They want to protect them and they truly believe they're protecting them. They're actually harming them because in the case of sex ed, the more you know, the better the outcome. But there, it's often a really tricky, thin line of, you know, I think I'm doing one thing, I'm actually doing another. And this view of this, you know, they're almost a couple, not a romantic couple, but it, there was something kind of I, you, apart from the mental health issues, you kind of understood why DD wanted this closeness. It was kind of an idyllic, um, you know, just the two of us kind of scenario, just watching Disney movies and singing and, uh, you know, putting in the feeding tube. It's it's a weird, there's a weird kind of appeal of what is, again, essentially a horrifically sadistic, messed up story. Mm-hmm. And I do think that they are going to, uh, there's going to be an episode about menstruation. I'm really curious to see yeah. see how that's handled. Yeah, that's something like a part of life for many, many women. And it is not something that is talked about in movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And it is a sign that you are growing up. So it sure how, is. how Dee Dee handles that. Yeah. We'll see how, they, how the creators handled it. Right. All right. Um, Marsha, do you think you'll continue watching? I have no idea if I can sit through it. I'm yeah. curious about um, the kind of um, creative license that they take with yeah. the actual story. Because I did see the documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest. Oh, you and did? I, I, I did watch it. Um, and I... I'm curious about how they add the elements that kind of led to Dee Dee's murder, and um, but I'm I'm actually very mixed on this. I don't think it's necessarily something I would not recommend, mm. but I don't know if I would participate in watching. Right, right, um, Maya. I I probably will finish it. <laughs> um, speaking of Ryan Murphy, you know, I, I I do watch like the assassination of Gianni Versace. I also found, I didn't realize when I began it that it was going to focus so much on Andrew Cunanan and his story. I thought it would be a little bit more about Versace himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought I thought that Ryan Murphy handled it well. Um, but this, th- this to me is more troubling on so many reasons, maybe because of the absence of the celebrity factor. Mm. Um, I imagine that I will finish it though. <laughs> I don't think I will. Uh, as in, as impressed by mu- by both the acting and, and much of the psychological kind of focus as I was, it's just kind of too hard. Um, listeners, uh, we've maybe given a, a very strange view of this: the a mixture of praise and concern, and and just uh, I don't know, almost trauma. Uh, if you watch the act, please share your thoughts with us. Uh, you can write to us at thewaves at slate.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No okay, for our final topic today, sex education. It's a topic that comes into the news all too frequently. Uh, Maya, you wrote about the latest attempts to limit access to comprehensive, accurate, I can't believe we have to mention accurate, Mm -hmm. sex education in America. Why is this in the news again? I think we're seeing just renewed efforts to uh, bring more comprehensive sex ed to our our young people. Uh, Susan Lantine in Colorado, state rep, uh, she introduced the bill uh, that would teach about safe sex, consent, very important. Oh, my goodness. Sexual orientation. Uh, of course, there were protests last weekend. Um, you know, in the UK, the British government made a major change to the curriculum that will uh, take place in 2020. Again, same-sex relationships, transgender issues, menstruation. How can you believe it? Uh, yes. Sexual assault, pornography, sexting. I mean... This country, the U.S. is really in the dark ages on this, and, and so is much of the world, world let's be honest. Um, but with the environment that young people are living in nowadays, um, especially with the accessibility of pornography, high definition, streaming, <laughs> hardcore pornography, uh, it is more important than ever that we really uh, reach out and kind of set a sort of baseline about what young people are learning about their bodies and about sex. Um, well, let me, this is one area where I'm going to play devil's advocate here because, like, are we just expecting too much of schools? Not, I mean, yes, stipulated. They are a place that are supposed to be focused on education. But given that this particular topic, which, again, stipulated, is kind of key, given that there's so much storm and drang and so much apparent parental opposition to communicating basic information is maybe we should like and it's not like schools are the only place that kids get information um so like maybe are we putting too much emphasis on schools given how easy it is to find information about everything these days should we just not give up on schools but is this a fight that we need to keep having um why, why does it still matter about sex I think, education? I think it is schools? a fight that needs to happen because students, they spend most of the majority of their time in school. It is a place where they get information. It is a place where they develop. <laughs> um, and if it's a place that, you know, most all students are going to uh, from home to home, the variables are, are so dramatic. And, you know, I think in an ideal world, Young people will be getting this information from their parents. That w- that w- I think would be ideal, but that is not the situation. Um, I don't want to say for most most young people, but I, I, mean, I would say certainly for a lot. And we're also talking about that, you know, bringing this out of the dark ages. That we, sex education does exist, but it is so highly flawed. Um, you know, Susan Lantine had said, "I'd rather them not." gets education in schools at all then get the wrong education. So I, I certainly see yeah, that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but to just give up on the place where young people go to learn and say, <laughs> this is one thing you are not going to learn here, um, where they are interacting with uh, 
their peers yeah. and yeah. where attractions happen yeah. and all, all this stuff happen, takes place in school. One of the things that I, I mean, I know I kind of, uh, we've talked about this before and I, I like put a funny intonation when I was speaking earlier, but just the fact that there's a, such a small group of states where mm. there's actually any compulsion to give accurate information. Just the notion that it's okay in schools to give inaccurate information on mm-hmm. any topic. It's just bonkers bananas. I That's think it's only insane. 13 states yeah, 13 have states. require scientifically, medically accurate sex education. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a small town in Kentucky. Um, I did have sex ed, which was abstinence-based. It was one day. They basically terrified you and then told you not to have sex. Maybe it was two days. Um, In the entire life of school. Yes. And it took place in eighth grade. And, um, you know, I went to a school where pregnancy was very common. I mean, this this was one of those towns where it was very, it was didn't even surprise you if a few of your classmates were pregnant. In fact, the, before I attended the school, which was in the mid-90s, just prior to that, there was a nursery in the school. Wow. So it's not effective. Right. And you're, you are really robbing young people of the opportunity to succeed when, you know, I mean, se- these people, people are, young people are going to have sex if they want to, to give them no information whatsoever. It's also a high, it was highly religious area. So they're not likely of like the chances of them getting this information at home, you know, is pretty slim. Okay. I'm going to stop playing devil's advocate now. Um, <laughs> um, Marsha, have you been just like revving up here as I, as I was talking nonsense? Um, I'm curious about your perspective as a historian. Um, is this a historically bad time for sex ed or are we actually doing better now because at least we acknowledge the existence of sex? I'm really curious how, where we are in this. Yeah, so we're doing really bad historically. <laughs> um, oh, wow, wow. So something to keep in mind, and um, this is something I often teach about when I teach on various topics about either the history of education or the history of you know sex and race in the United States. So the reason why we have sex education in school is because there's a sense that public schools have a responsibility to educate children in certain kind of values about citizenship as well as their responsibility. And so just like we have constitution tests, um, we have kind of um, standards and requirements for what students need to learn in order to be functioning members of society who contribute to the common good. Sex education comes from that same kind of framework. And there was deep concern about the spread of sexually transmitted infections in the early 20th century. And so in many ways, I think sex education was probably more progressive and thoughtful um, during the kind of interwar period um, of, you know, after World War One and around World War Two, because people were really concerned about people spreading disease. And mm. so early sex education was pretty good in terms of thinking about giving young people information about disease, um, because they believed that the spread of sexually transmitted diseases undermined the kind of strength of democracy. They were concerned about um, young men 
who were in the military and uh, teenage women having sex with them. So there was a kind of a clear understanding that this was about a, a general public good. And then I think the fight over the morality questions of sex education, those emerge in the 1960s and 70s. And I think that they are very much a backlash against um, a kind of fear of free love. Um, some of this is about anti-communism. Some wow. of this is about an obsession with normalcy at mid-century. So there are many ways in which sex education is actually an issue that moves across a spectrum of being kind of more open to more closed. What I think is interesting is I attended Catholic school in the 80s and 90s. And while sex education wasn't comprehensive, there was a recognition of AIDS because people were uh -huh. concerned about AIDS in a way that I think some of that concern has shifted. Um, people were really kind of grappling with how do you talk to students about HIV, right? And so I think there's an interesting cultural shift that happens that I think is tied to um, a lessening public concern about HIV transmission, as well as the privatization of schooling, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I think that when you have fewer and fewer public schools and schools that are using these alternative models of governance, I think it opens up the space to play with sex education. And I think the last part is the incredible organization of the religious right yeah. in making not only um, abortion access part of their political agenda, but also influencing schools. And I mean, here's the thing. Someone's making money off of this. So it isn't just that schools are not doing comprehensive sex education. These third-party contractors are creating these abstinence-only or abstinence-based materials, and they are selling it to school districts, mm -hmm. and they are doing the programmings, and these speakers are coming in and talking to students in public schools. So there's an entire economy behind this that I think people have to also be really vigilant about because it's not just kids aren't getting sex education. They're getting something. They're getting a form of education that is privatized and contracted to schools. Fascinating. Wow. I did want to bring this back to uh, the topic of pornography, mm -hmm. um, which I really think has completely radically changed the way that, I mean, when I was growing up and it wasn't that long ago to view a naked person or to view an act of sex was you had to go about it through all these different ways. I mean, it it was not available. And, uh, you know, Maggie Jones for New York Times Magazine did that big piece last yeah, year. Yeah, we, we talked about that on the show, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and I mean, the quote to me that's st what stuck out was from a young young man, a boy, who said there's nowhere else to learn about sex than pornography and porn stars know what they're doing. I mean, you had mentioned, you know, there are so many other places that 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 children can learn. And, and sure, there are wonderful resources online. But if you are is, is a teenager going to Google responsible sex education and <laughs> read those, <laughs> go to the more boring websites, or are they just going or are they, is it going to be kind of inflicted upon them yeah. by somebody being like, hey, watch this. And then, you know, I also think that, that that's a big problem um, when maybe once in a back in the day, somebody would open up a, a centerfold and that would be your first exposure. But now first exposure can be can be something really troubling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Marcia, it's really interesting that you you know you mentioned the the kind of the the forces of, of conservatism in a way because um, it's just so striking to me that uh, you know conservatives see sex education as government overreach, which is you know and in turn I see their rejection of scientific medical 
medically accurate sex education as like activism overreach. Um, I'm I'm just in a sense impressed by their effectiveness. I mean, um, the fact that so few states uh, require sex education at all, require accurate sex education, um, they have been incredibly effective. Um, again, just to go back to that previous topic, in the name of protecting their children when in fact, as it's been clearly established, uh, actually getting the, the more you know about sex, the more you know about STIs, the more you know about consent, the less likely you are to become pregnant uh, in an unwanted way at an unwanted time. Well, also, something that I don't think is coincidental that at the moment in which people are deliberating how they're going to, if they're going to, but they don't, integrate schools, this is also a really important inflection point in trying to reduce sex education in schools. Like These things are not incidental. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about these debates about sex education, I can't think of an environment that... Um, is so aggressive in its promotion of heterosexuality as mm. particularly high school. If it were up to me, if totally. I were queen of the world, there would be no <laughs> dances. There would be no funny business. Teachers would not talk to students about like who they're dating. There would be no prom king and queen. Mm-hmm. There would be no sweetheart princess. Everyone would come to school for four hours and then go do something else. I mean, there is this <laughs> way in which there is a sexualized social culture of school. And a lot of that explodes in the 1950s. And this is why I think um, a lot of um, attempts to integrate schools or to question kind of what's happening within the dynamics of schools. There's this really strange um kind of uh, duality that on one hand, so much about school is about um, about sexualizing kids and their social world, worlds and then also being really silent about sex. Wow. <laughs> Don't even get me started on the heteronormativity yeah, yeah. Of, of school. Well, as somebody who only experienced American high school through television, I can tell you that in American high school, there are five minutes of classes and I think about 40 minutes of dances every day. That's uh, that's how it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, Marsha would say, if I were queen of the world, I would make you queen of the world, then I would step down. So we're going to make that happen. <laughs> I appreciate that yeah. plan. Okay, well, we I think this is a story that we're going to be talking about forever. Uh, this uh, kind of push to control and confuse children in school. And uh, since they don't stay in school forever, forever. Uh, listeners, if you have thoughts about sex education, uh, like if there's a way to make sure that people get accurate, useful, comprehensive education about sex and consent and, well, the human body, please write to us at thewaves at slate.com. All right, it's time for our recommendations. What do you have this week, Marsha? I recommend an autobiographical novel in verse, uh, The Summer of Dead Birds by Ali Liebgott, who is a television writer, a poet, oh, um, yeah. a painter. Um, she, she also wrote this very funny memoir about um, gambling addiction called Cha-Ching. Which has a fantastic uh, dental scene in it. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm yes, a fan. Um, so um, from Feminist Press, The Summer of Dead Birds, it just came out. You should get a copy. Ooh, thank you for that recommendation. I had not heard about uh, her new book. Uh, Maya. My recommendation, and I'm sure you have heard about it, um, is Her Body and Other Parties. 
Has this been recommended yet on the show? Um, you know, uh, uh, some time ago, but the, oh, not for a has. while. But that's okay. We, we often <laughs> do repeats. It's no, that's no worries. That's how good it is. Yeah. Um, yes, by Carmen Maria Mikado. Wonderful, what I would call feminist horror. Um, really queer. Um, her writing is remarkable. It's textural. It's colorful. It's warm. And at the same time, horrifying and is able to kind of balance the sustained dread with warmth, which is just not something I've ever felt with this sort of literature. Um, completely fresh. And uh, it's, it's it's short stories, by the way. So uh, you don't feel like you're committing to <laughs> 600 pages or anything, but it is just brilliantly smart and completely creative and like nothing I've ever read. I highly recommend it. You know, that is something that despite many, many recommendations, I have still not read. So I'm going to move that up my pile <laughs> too. I am going to recommend uh, a movie. Um, Everybody Knows, uh, Todos Los Saben, by it's directed and written by Asghar Farhadi, um, but it is a Spanish movie, uh, effectively. It has uh, Penelope Cruz, Javier Badem, uh, and the great Argentinian actor Ricardo Darín. Um, it's about um, a story, I mean, it, and despite it, having an, despite it having an Iranian writer-director being about Spain, it's actually... Re- I shouldn't say despite because it's really about going back, which is something that I think that everybody who has left their country um, kind of has feelings for about. Uh, so it's a very emotional uh, film, um, which is films like A Separation or The Salesman often are. Uh, is about kind of going back to a place uh, effectively and kind of in something that you wanted you wanted to go back you wanted to be in that place you wanted to be with those people you wanted to bring the new you to there and yet things turn to hell this amazing wonderful wedding becomes a scene of of absolute not horror uh but fear and you know a worst case scenario there's a kidnapping um and it's just it's it's a despite that kind of very tense subject matter it's very beautiful it's it's really about emotion uh, it's just a fantastic uh movie so everybody knows all right that's our show for today thank you so much to our production assistant alex barish to our producer danielle hewitt and you can tweet to us at dr m chatlin and at maya underscore underscore salam and at june thomas for marcia and maya i'm june thomas the waves will be back next week For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.